This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Welcome back to this week's episode. I know before we started talking about the guests this week, I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has subscribed and left us a review or comment. We really appreciate it. And if you enjoy the show and you love listening to us every week, hit that lovely subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. We would really appreciate it. And that's all. Thank you. Moving right into the fun part of the episode. We won't keep you on pens and needles too long. This week, I'm very excited to welcome Joel Schwartz, who, if you are a true crime junkie, you probably are familiar with Pam Hupp and the Hulu show that came out. Was that last year, Nikki, that that came out? I want to say, yeah. The thing about Pam? Uh, Renee Zellweger. Yes, fantastic. Yeah. Well, Joel was the criminal defense attorney that represented Russ Fiera, which was Betsy's husband, which if you watch the show, spoiler alert, Betsy was murdered by Pam and Russ ultimately was convicted of murdering his wife. And Joel was the attorney that represented Russ the entire time through that initial trial and through his appeals. And so I'm extremely excited to talk to him about that case and just in general. I know as a criminal defense attorney, because I think that's a toughie. Because not everybody's innocent. That's a tough job. That's a tough gig. Because I also feel like it's... Not everybody's innocent. No. And so how does that work? I don't know. How does that work? Who's representing those individuals? Because there are, there has to be people that come to the office that you're like, no, oh, I'm not too sure about this character. See, I don't know if that's a job for me because I don't know if I could switch that off. I don't know if I could be like, oh, you're not not guilty. You know what I mean? Yeah. The judgment lens that you look through, it would have to not exist. And I feel that's tricky. Yeah. As just like human nature. I'm curious how he does this and how he stays impartial so that he can work a case. Yeah. That's a very interesting to me is how you stay impartial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, I'm excited to talk to him. And I really just devoured the Dateline podcast with, um, oh God, what is his name? With The Voice. The Voice. What's his name? Yeah. I can't remember. It blew my mind. Blew my mind. That whole case. Yeah, that whole story is insane. Bizarre. From start to finish, bizarre. I don't understand how he even got convicted, but that's why it's going to be really interesting to talk to him about little details like that too. So I'm excited. Yeah. There's like a ton there. Keith Morrison. Sorry, it just popped in my brain. Is that Keith Morrison is the Dateline guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love his voice. Isn't it great? Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yes. Just for the record, we have Nikki. That is show business. We didn't tell everyone about. You do have a new... I now have a podcast pub. Yes, we got another corgi. Her name is Mabel, Marty and Mabel. But Mabel is not as trained in the podcasting world as Marty. So she's a little loud. And you might hear a little, like, like a little yip, like there. She just wants to be a part of the conversation. She's so loud all the time. She's killing me. So if you hear a little ruckus in the background, that's Mabel that doesn't like to settle down. So... Yeah. That's what that is. So Welcome. Because if I don't have her in the room yeah. with me, she's going to rip my house to shreds. And then Marty will rip the house to shreds. And I don't have time for that. So here we go. Here we go. All right. Well, let's the four of us. Yes. Welcome Joel on. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. Let's get him. 
This is Joel. Hey, Joel. It's Mariah. Hi, Mariah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. It's now still an okay time to chat. It is. Okay, perfect. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I think the easiest way for us to kind of jump into these is to have you introduce yourself and tell us what you do in one to two sentences. My name's Joel Schwartz. I am a criminal defense attorney and have been such for 33 years now. I also wrote the book Bone Deep based on the Russ Faria slash Pam Hupp murder trial. I can't wait to talk to you about Russ and Betsy and Pam and all of that. But before we jump into that part, I'd love to understand how did you become a criminal defense attorney? Because I imagine as a little kid, that wasn't something that you thought you were going to be. It was not even close to what I thought I was going to be. I graduated law school in 1987. And I went to law school as a backup with no intention of actually practicing. I just kind of figured it would never hurt whatever I did. I, however, in the back of my mind, wanted to be involved in the Hollywood slash movie industry. So I immediately graduated law school, went out to Los Angeles and began and continued waiting tables over the course of the following two years. Wow, okay. So I came back to St. Louis during a prolonged writer's strike in 1989, and while I was in St. Louis, I ran into a friend of mine who was in the middle of a murder trial. He suggested I come watch the trial for a little bit, and uh, after sitting through about three days of that trial, I thought, you know, this is something that I could do. I think I would enjoy it. I also think I'd be good at it. So I decided in 1989 to apply to the public defender's office. And if I got the job, give it a year and see how things went and see if I enjoyed it and see if I enjoyed being back in St. Louis. Well, that is now some 33 plus years ago, and I'm still here doing this. And frankly, for the most part, still enjoying it. Wow. That's That's great. Incredible. Okay. I have to ask two follow-up questions to that. My first being, how did studying law become your backup plan? Because that's a pretty intense and dedicated backup plan. Most people I think would be like, oh, if this doesn't work out, I'll go in finance or something. That's that's a very high bar you set for yourself. Well, I uh, never knew anything about criminal defense. I went to the University of Texas Law School and most of my friends, all of my friends, were all intent on getting that high-paying, big firm job when they graduated. That was all corporate slash finance law, mergers and acquisitions, things of that nature. I interviewed with most of those firms. I got a couple of very nice offers. I clerked over the summers for a couple of those firms and realized this is simply not something I can do. It's not within my nature. So not knowing anything about the criminal defense, I had always been involved in theater and loved every moment of it. I decided, you know, everybody says if you can turn your passion into your employment, that's a successful career. And I attempted to do that, had minimal success. And had it not been for that writer's strike that went on in 89, I probably would still be out there either uh, living on the streets in a tent or a house in the Hollywood Hills. (laughs) Who knows which? There you go. Okay, I have another question that Nikki and I were talking about, and I'm hoping maybe you can explain this to me because we were talking about this before you jumped on. So the attorneys that we've talked to in the past, typically when we ask them, like a client comes to you and they want you to represent them, but you think that there's a chance that potentially they actually are are guilty. A lot of attorneys have said, oh, well, I, 
I have this ethics code where I won't take cases like that on. I won't take them as a client. So my question is, is how do these people eventually get attorneys? Who are these attorneys that do represent them? Are these the quote unquote court appointed attorneys? And are these your, your low, I don't want to insult anybody. Like a public defender? No. Yeah. Is this like a low level person that gets put on these cases? How do these people get represented if people like yourself can say, I don't want to represent them. Well, fortunately, I'm at a point where I do have that luxury. However, I'm going to I'm gonna quarrel with your initial premise on this. A criminal defense attorney who says that he will not get involved with cases where he believes a client might be guilty is either outright lying or deluding himself or not making a living. And because the fact of the matter is there are a number of people I represent who I am convinced are not guilty are innocent. But that percentage is anywhere from as little as maybe 5% at times to maybe 20%, meaning obviously 80 to 95% of my clients are guilty, at least of something. So it would be virtually impossible to make a living if you refuse to invest time and effort into defending somebody who you believe might be guilty. And I, I say that, but guilt comes in many different forms. There can be a charge of a murder in the first degree when you believe it's a manslaughter. Um, or a murder second. There can be a situation where somebody's caught stealing and the state wants them to go to prison for seven years and you just don't believe that the time they're asking for fits the crime that your client committed. There are an infinite amount of ways to assist somebody even if you believe they're guilty. It may simply be, hey, I'm here for damage control and I am going to attempt to limit the damage to their life, meaning the time that they go to the penitentiary. There are simply times where it's outright guilt or innocence and you're going to trial, but the entire gamut is filled here. And I certainly quarrel with that premise that there is or are criminal defense lawyers out there who will refuse to represent somebody who they think might be guilty. It's just not the way to make a living. You don't have to fall in love with your clients, and your job is not to determine guilt or innocence. Your job, remember, is to prevent the state from being able to prove whether or not your client is guilty, and that's what's afforded us by the Constitution. If they can't prove that my client's guilty, whether or not my client is guilty or not, it may be a callous thing to say, but if they can't do their job, that means I'm doing my job and my client should not go to prison. I guess that's tricky for me. I kind of wrestle with that a little bit, though. I understand what you're saying, but I guess in my head, as you're talking me through that, I think about an individual like Jeffrey Dahmer. And <laughs> if that file came across my desk as an attorney, I wouldn't want to touch that. Like, I fully believe he did do that and he is an evil person and I wouldn't even want to do damage control for him. Well, I don't disagree with that. If Jeffrey Dahmer walked into my office, I'm not going to represent Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. Th those so are extreme. Kind of on the same page with me there, Joel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> those are extremes. Yeah, I guess that's that is true to say. That is an extreme. That's not the type of individual that's typically knocking on your door. No. That's not the individual <laughs> that's typically knocking on anybody's door. That's so atypical. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I could see that. That is an extreme example. Have you always wanted to do defense law? You never wanted to do the other side where you prosecute? No. And to take your previous question, I don't have it in me. Uh, let's assume that somebody is guilty of not a violent crime, but drug possession. And they're an addict and they've been convicted three different times, four different times of drug possession or stealing. And they go and they steal, they shoplift, and they keep getting convicted of shoplift, shoplifting and haven't stopped. They deserve to be treated and or punished, depending upon what the root of their problem is. I'm simply not the guy 
who wants to stand in front of a judge or a jury and ask for this person to go to prison. I've been to the prisons and people don't truly realize how extreme of a punishment that is. Essentially, and I'm not naive, there are people who deserve what they get and there are people who deserve to go to prison, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. And if you kill somebody and it's not justified, you deserve to be punished. But it's extreme to ask somebody, to command somebody to go live in a cage for two years, five years, 10 years, most people don't understand the severity of that. And it's real and it's very severe. And I never understood what went on behind the scenes before I started doing this. And you have corruption at all levels. And when I say corruption, I don't mean this organized sort of backdoor dealing. There's a fine line in many situations between police and criminals. Many of the police, the qualifications are they have to be a high school graduate and go through 12 weeks of the police academy. Now, that's a minimum percentage. It may be 5% of them or 10%. But what that means is you have corrupt officers who are lying merely to make a case, as I've dealt with many, many times over the last three decades. And I've represented many police officers with crimes that they were actually guilty of in doing what I just said. The other side of that coin is you will have victims who lie frequently. And that's where my job comes in. Uh, when you have a rape case, it's hard to believe that somebody charged with rape would lie. I mean, somebody accusing someone else of rape would lie. But I've lived through this with tens of clients who were accused of serious, serious allegations when it was either consent or never happened in the first place. So it's a very difficult job or task if you have, let's say, a rape victim, which is a serious, serious allegation. And if the perpetrator or if the person accused of perpetrating the crime did it, of course, they should be punished. But at the same time, many, many cases, there is no evidence whatsoever. It's simply the victim's word against the defendant's word. And I simply just couldn't prosecute those. And if there is no proof, it, there, there's just so many innocent people that are in prison. I can't imagine being guilty and being sent to prison. That has to be compounded tenfold by being innocent and being in prison. That's got to be hard. Which is an extremely long-winded answer to your question is how can I do what I do? When you get a case, I mean, obviously you have the bigger one, which is the the Pam one. Do they come to you? They do sometimes, but it, most of the time, 99% of the time, or even maybe higher than that, believe it or not, they'll come to me once they're being investigated or have been charged. Police call you and say, hey, you're a suspect in this particular matter. Would you come talk to us? Or the police show up at your door. They read you your rights. They say you have a right to an attorney and they book you and then release you. Most of those people, if they're smart, will get an attorney at that point in time. And just by the nature of doing this for so long in this particular area, we get a significant amount of those phone calls and step in and deal with those people. Okay. Not that I ever, I hope that I would never need your services, Joel, to be honest, but just to clarify, <laughs> in case I did, at what point is it best to reach out to an individual like yourself? Is it that moment that they want to bring me down to the police station? Should I not do any line of questioning unless I have an attorney present? It's a knee-jerk reaction for defense attorneys to say you should never open your mouth and you should always request an attorney. There are exceptions to that. But as far as reaching out to somebody, it should be immediate. Uh, I have many people who have committed crimes who come and retain me long before the police or the authorities have even reached out to them. It's what? just 
Well, let's say, for example, that you are involved with narcotics trafficking, and it's just something that you do and you have done. And there's a possibility that you could get stopped and arrested. And you want to have an attorney ready to go the moment that that occurs. So you'll get retained. And I'm not telling you people are planning to commit a murder and they come in and retain you. But something along the lines of drugs is where you'll see people retain you in advance. That's crazy to me. I would never think that people would do that, but that makes sense. And do they tell you their whole story? Like they give you everything, their entire backstory, just so that they can call you and be like, yeah, I got picked up today. It always depends on the person. Many times they tell you everything and everybody's story is different. uh, And everybody's, all these individuals' justifications are different for doing what they do. Uh, Many of them are in denial. It is, it's a crazy world that I deal in. And I, I grew up thinking, okay, I knew the ways of the world. And the fact of the matter is I had I knew nothing. You, uh, your, your, your eyes get opened wide once you get involved in this business. That's nuts. That's crazy. Okay, so Joel, let's dive into the rest case a little bit. I all don't right. want to spend all the time talking about it, but I definitely think it is really interesting because it is someone that was innocent. So how long had you been practicing law? And I, I may have the details incorrect, but was it Russ's cousin that initially came to you to represent him? Russ's cousin, Mary, had apparently, and I didn't remember it at the time, but when I left the public defender's office in 91, she had worked at the firm I was working at for a short period oh, wow. of time. And then in early 2012 is when Russ was arrested and she had called me. How does this work? Does he come to your office? They obviously, you know, said that he was guilty. So is he detained in a prison? How do you guys get to talk? How does that work? Yes, there is a difference between prisons and jails. And most people aren't aware of that. But a jail is where people are held prior to trial. Prison is after you've been convicted. So Russ was in jail up in Lincoln County and his cousin Mary called me about 11 o'clock or so. Um, I don't remember what day it was. It was. I think it might have been a Monday or Tuesday. And she told me what was going on. And I had seen some of the news regarding Russ Faria. And frankly, I see it so much, I don't pay that close of attention. My recollection was he was arrested, he confessed, and there was blood all over him. And the woman was stabbed 50-something times. So it's one of those situations where I sort of assumed I was coming in for damage control. Well, his his cousin Mary gave me a complete 180-degree different version of the series of events that had occurred. I told her to be at my office the next morning. She was in, and then I went out to the jail and visited Russ that afternoon and walked away from that meeting with a thought of, if any of the information this guy just gave to me pans out, which it certainly seemed like it would, and he certainly seemed to be trustworthy, then he didn't commit this murder. After spending a couple of weeks verifying the information, I was 100% confident that I would go visit the prosecutor who was kind of new and young. We'd have a sit down. I'd explain to her the mistakes that had been made in the investigation by the police. The case would be dismissed and we would quickly move on with life. Couldn't have been more wrong. Okay. Before you go on with that story, a couple clarifying questions I have. First, how many years had you been practicing law at this point? Was this kind of, would you call this like your big splash worthy case or had you done some other things that were, you know, just as flashy? Nobody does, or very, very few attorneys do anything as flashy as this. I've, I hold the record for Dateline appearances. We've got six episodes and and they're going to do a seventh. I've had a TV movie made, well, a TV series made where I was, frankly, the hero and had a movie star play me. And I wrote a book about it. 
and it's just something very, very rare and special that happens in a career. And frankly, this is why you do what I do. Prior to 2012, when she had called, I'd had uh, some pretty big cases. One of them was featured on 60 Minutes. So there had been some some big cases. You had some stuff under your belt. Yes, I was not a newbie. I've been doing it for 23 years at the time, which then seemed like a really long time. It really does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I've never done anything for 23 years. I have, yeah. Yeah, it is a long time. That's incredible. Okay, so when you go and you see Russ in jail, I'm trying to like compare this to what they show you on television. Do you get only an hour with him? Is it an unlimited amount of time? Is he like chained to the table with the guard in the corner? What is the environment that you get to interact with these individuals? No, but you're put into an independent conference room. You have all the time you need within limits. I, I think if I had been there for eight hours, they would have said that's enough. I was probably there for between two to three hours. We went through everything that I needed to know and everything I needed to do. There's no guard in the room. Uh, they can't record anything. And he and I had a nice long initial meeting and discussion, and I liked him. He seems sincere. What I have learned, unfortunately, is anyone and everyone is capable of anything and everything. That is something I have learned. So you can't really judge based on simply somebody's personality. But it was the information that he gave me that was so easily disprovable if he was lying to me that I, th I knew I would know sooner or later pretty quickly whether or not I believed he had done this. I walked out of there thinking he didn't. And my initial belief was confirmed within a matter of weeks. He had quite a bit of alibis and receipts and things to prove of his whereabouts, correct? Where he wasn't there at the time, but that wasn't looked at originally. They just didn't do anything about it? They looked at it. And this is one of those times where when I told you, you keep your mouth shut, he spoke to them for almost 36 hours. He told them everywhere he went, everyone he was with and all the stops he made. So what they were able to do initially and thankfully is they were able to go out while he was in custody and confirm with individuals that he was there. They were able to pull video showing the stops he made and they were able to go and they interviewed the four alibi witnesses he was with over the course of those first 36 hours, two separate times in four separate police stations and they videotaped it all. So what I still don't know is why they chose to ignore all of those things, making it impossible for him to commit this to commit this crime. Do you think it was just because there wasn't anybody else to look at and they just thought it has to be him, it's him, moving on? Yes and no. Russ Faria initially called in and said, I just got home from a friend's house and my wife killed herself. Those were his exact words. That was ridiculous. She was stabbed 56 times. Um, and more than half of those were in the back and more than half of those were made post-mortem. So the person who did this would have to be naive enough to think that I'm going to trick them and they're not going to look at the wounds, which the argument there is the person who says she committed suicide is not the person who committed the crime. What the police didn't know and that I came up with pretty quickly is several things. Number one, she had suffered from depression. She had attempted suicide in the past. She had left a note in the past. She had been stopped by a traffic cop for running a stop sign and threatened suicide. And that cop had her involuntarily committed. And then within weeks of this murder, she had been diagnosed with a terminal illness for breast cancer. So you combine all those things and Russ came home. And even though it was not the right conclusion, given all that information, and how out of the box it is to come home and view this, 
his initial call at least makes sense under those circumstances. Yeah. So they, they assumed he was attempting to trick him. That combined with the fact that the husband always is the one or the spouse is the one who did it, jumped through the police to come to a conclusion even though it was clearly wrong. The problem after that was when you say because there was nobody else, well, what we did have is her friend Pam Hupp. We knew was the last one with her. We knew that Pam Hupp was getting the insurance proceeds. One of the insurance policies had been in Russ's name since they were married 11 years prior. It was changed under mysterious circumstances four days before she was brutally murdered. Pam Hupp insisted on being with her that day and taking her home even after Betsy had texted her and said, I don't need you. I don't need the ride home. I want to spend one-on-one -on -one time with this other person. Pam still showed up. And then when police went to question her the next morning, every time Pam opened her mouth, a lie came out. And it was a, a readily provable lie. Yet, there's something called confirmation bias. The police believe they had the right guy and believe they were correct. And there was nothing that could dissuade them or, frankly, the prosecutor from this belief that Russ had done it, including all the information I was able to show by cell site that Pam Hupp was there at the time of the murder. They just simply ignored that. And the jury didn't get to hear those things. Why do they do that going into the, the trial part? How is there able to pick and choose what can be heard and what cannot be heard? Well, because we had yeah, a prosecutor. Of, that. I can't. Yeah, the, the, the fact oh. of the matter is I can't. We had a prosecutor who objected to it coming in, and we had a judge who had no idea what the law was, trusted the prosecutor, and ruled against me. So every witness would testify. Then the jury would leave the room so I could make what's called an offer of proof so we have it on the record for the Court of Appeals to view and to listen to. So it was something where the rulings were inexplicable. That insurance information I just told you about, the jury did not hear about that, that Pam Hupp got the insurance proceeds. So I'm trying to understand how this works. So the trial has started. The jurors are present. Some information is presented. And then there's, I don't know what it's officially called. Is it like a recess? And then the only people left in the courtroom are the attorneys and the judge. And you guys are discussing what you want to present next. And they can tell you, no, you can't say that. You're halfway there. Um, okay. The only difference is the courtroom is full. There's no recess. It's open court, except the jurors are excused and they don't get to listen to this information. So everything continues to go on. I get to continue the, to question the witness. Now I can do a full and thorough cross-examination of the police officer or Pam Hupp or whomever the witness may be, but it's out of the hearing of the jury. So the jury didn't get to hear about the insurance. They didn't get to hear about Pam Hub's cell site showing she was there at the time of the murder. They didn't get to hear about all the lies that Pam Hub continued to tell. What was interesting is the courtroom was full. And so I was told that after the jury convicted Russ the first time, all the people who actually got to watch the trial called their friends who were on the jury and said, you just convicted an innocent man. Yeah. Okay. That brings me to two questions. So again, my first one is a clarifying question. So the judge is the, the only person that makes the decision on if the jurors get to hear the information or not. That's their final say. Is that yes, and it's Yes, and it's rare. It, it, it is rare. In this particular case, she was, I presented her at one point with, a, with 100 cases to show her how wrong she was, and it didn't change her ruling at all. Yeah, offers of proof are not something that generally happens. Um, because the ruling gets made, the ruling is within the, within the rules of law, and many, many judges understand how the law works and how the facts work. In this particular case, the judge simply didn't understand, despite my best efforts to educate her, and she never understood, which is one of the reasons why I was always, I was absolutely confident 
even though he got convicted, that we get a second trial because I knew the Court of Appeals. I knew the Court of Appeals wouldn't rule that way. And then I guess my second question is, you kind of alluded to, is you have these people that are watching the trial that hear this information, the verdict comes out. How is there not a public outroar? Because I feel like if I was sitting in the audience and I heard this stuff and the jurors didn't, and then he got convicted, that I would be calling news outlets and being like, they have this and they have that. And you know, he's innocent and he's, you know, being sentenced to life in prison. How is there not a public backlash that happens when information like that is, you know, I, I don't know. Well, there, there was. Um, there was one reporter who covered it, as they say, gavel to gavel. And he, along with one of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch news reporters, did a special after the conviction, which they won a local Emmy for. Uh, and about a week after the conviction is when I got a call from a Dateline producer out of Chicago. You could tell there was skepticism in her voice. She started asking me questions. I answered the questions. And then her final question was, well, if he didn't do this, who did? I gave her the answer. She said, are you available tomorrow morning? So she got in her car, drove down here, and uh, we were off and running. And the public outcry became nationwide at that point. After Dateline first aired, there was thousands and thousands of comments. I got probably, at least after the initial Dateline, I don't know, 50 to 100 letters talking about his innocence, and it was pretty clear. And again, we're talking, Dateline's been on for, I think, 30 years or more. The most episodes that they've ever had on a show or a case is four, and those were high-profile. One was the John Bonet Ramsey case, and one was the O.J. Simpson case. This was so outlandish and so rare. We've already had six episodes. Two of them were two hours, and they're planning on doing a seventh episode on this case once Pam goes to trial. He got convicted, and then this whole time everyone knows it wasn't him, and Pam's just out living her life, like, dude to do. I'm having a great time. <laughs> And no one's watching her? <laughs> yeah. Well, the authorities were Lincoln County authorities. And it wasn't just that they were watching her. During the course of the trial, she would go in and out of the back door of the courthouse with the prosecution team, whereas everyone else, including myself, had to go through a metal detector and be checked through security. None of that existed for her. Oh, wow. So there was nobody that had the jurisdiction to look at her at that time. That's that unbelievable. That is so crazy to me. Is that just because she's a really, really good liar and can convince people, or they just really didn't think it, she had anything to do with it and she's just the sad friend? She, I guess from their point of view, they were convinced. I can't really the answer that. She's not a convincing liar. She's a terrible liar. They just chose to believe everything she was saying, which, That's but it's not, it's, it's not even that. She would change her story. For example, when they went to see her the next morning and we're talking about, this is 6 a.m. The body was discovered at 10 p.m., 9.40 something p.m. They, one of the first questions they asked her was if she ever went in the house with Betsy and she said no. Well, within about 30 seconds. She said, well, yes, she just went in to turn the light on. And after another few minutes discussion, it turned out she was in there for what she estimated at 20 to 30 minutes. They asked her about, there was a phone call from her cell phone to Betsy Faria's cell phone 23 minutes after we knew they arrived at Betsy's house. Now, we're notwithstanding the fact that at first she said she didn't go in the house, but they asked her why she called Betsy. And the answer was, the initial answer was, I called her to let her know that I made it home safe. Well, they were a little bit skeptical. So they said, well, what did you mean by that? Because she she lived 35 minutes away, so she couldn't possibly have been home. So they gave her another opportunity. She said, well, what I meant was I was at this intersection of these highways where I knew where I was. And they continued to question her. And she said, well, actually, I, maybe I was still even in Troy at the time. Well, 
she the difference between Troy and her house is over 30 minutes away. I subpoenaed her cell site and she wasn't even in Troy. She was in the same quadrant as the house at the time she made that phone call. So it was irrefutable lies. So to say that they believed her, they just called it noise and it was irrelevant and didn't really matter. Ugh, that's so crazy. So he's convicted. He's in jail or prison now. The day after, do you just start the appeals process and get that ball rolling? Well, you have to wait until after somebody's actually sentenced. So he got sentenced to life without parole. Then you have to wait for all the transcripts to be completed. So that takes some time because there's all this testimony that has to be transcribed. So that's a number of weeks. I don't remember specifically how many. Generally, the appellate process, there have been exonerations in Missouri, and I can't speak to other states, but the people who have been exonerated, it's been generally the average is between 12 and 14 years in Missouri. What? Yeah, and we had Russ's case not only overturned in that time, we were actually overturned and in trial in less than two years on the second trial, which tells you how much of a mockery of justice this actually was. So people are waiting 12 to 14 years and are innocent and waiting to have a retrial, basically. Well, that's the average. Some are less, some are more. And most don't ever get that opportunity. You have to remember that. It's very, very difficult to win a case on an appeal and get sent back to the trial court. So the overwhelming majority never get that. The average that I'm telling you about are the ones that are overturned. And why is that? Is that just because of money and time and just why? The answer is all the above. It takes time, number one. The appellate process can be very long and consuming. My case actually, the appeal never actually got heard. And it had never even been scheduled at the time we got overturned. What happened on mine is we came up with some new evidence and some new facts. And my appeal had been filed. But at this point in time, once we got these new facts, there is a rule that we found I had never heard of, nor had anybody I'd ever I talked to had ever heard of this. It was called the Mooney motion. And a Mooney motion in Missouri had been granted twice in the 250 years that we'd been a state. And I didn't think we would get granted. I thought it was a long shot, but it couldn't hurt. So it's based on newly discovered evidence that it was so egregious had been kept out that had the jury been able to hear it, it more than likely would have resulted in a different verdict. And I thought, boy, what, what more could I give the Court of Appeals? So we sent that to the Court of Appeals and without reply from the state, the court sent it back directing the trial court to conduct a hearing to determine whether or not a true new trial should be granted. And at that point, I knew we'd get a new trial. So you have to apply for an appeal and then it has to go and they have to approve that you can have a new trial and then you have to sit and wait for that new trial to be scheduled. Yes, but in a nutshell, what you just described easily takes three, four, five years. We're seeing that right now in the news with Adnan Saeed, yes. you know, he's, but, and that took well, isn't he like an 20, isn't he, amount of years. Yeah, I think he's like 15 years in, 20 years, something like that. So this isn't a quick moving process, which also must be the most frustrating thing, especially if I'm Russ, who truly is innocent. How infuriating that it just moves so slowly. It's infuriating, it's maddening, and it's incredibly unjust. But these things just take, they take time. I, I can't justify as to why. But there's a backup in the courts. It takes time for the transcript to be prepared. And then the motions have to be written. And you can be going through a week's worth of testimony trying to get your motion together. And you need an extension. And then the government comes in or the state comes in and they ask for extension after extension. It takes a lot of time. And then you can lose on the appeal. And then there's other processes that go on and all that stuff. It just I, I can't imagine sitting in jail or in prison awaiting the outcome of something like this. 
in a man like Rush's shoes. How many times can you appeal your case? Well, there's different levels of appeal, but technically only one. Every state is different. So you have your right to an appeal, but you lose that, then you can say your lawyer didn't do his job correctly, what they call ineffective assistance of counsel. You can apply to the Supreme Court. They can turn it down. And then you can go to the federal courts for what's called a writ of habeas corpus and ask the federal courts to look at it. And if you fail there, you can actually do that with the state as well. Every successive stage gets more and more difficult. If you lose at trial, it's very, very difficult. The percentage of cases that get overturned is probably less than 2%. The cases that get overturned at later levels is even less. So there are some people who don't understand that and they think, well, if I lose a trial, I get another chance and I can simply appeal that verdict. It's just not that easy. It's harder and harder and harder as you go up the chain. Did Russ ever, I have to imagine he lost hope at some point or did I just... I feel like I would feel, even if I was innocent, I would feel it's impossible. Maybe it's because it's the time frame and how long this stuff takes. It would make me feel a little hopeless. I'm certain you're right, but I'm not aware of any time that Russ actually ever did lose hope. He seemed to maintain faith in me and faith that the truth would win out. And I continued to assure him that I would do everything I can. And I actually did believe that we would win. I knew in my soul we were going to get a new trial and I knew we were going to win that trial. But that's got to be hard for you to mentally too, because you, you know, he's innocent and you believe he's innocent. And he's sitting there. It's not easy. You guys are just waiting. Yeah. Uh. It's not easy. Couldn't imagine. Now, something like with Pam, she was out and then she committed two more murders, right? She was never charged. So in the meantime, during one of those offers of proof that we're talking about, where the jury wasn't hearing, I was cross-examining her regarding the insurance. And she volunteered. She had set up a trust for Betsy's children one week before the jury trial just to make it look good, which was, by the by the way, defunded one week after the trial. So she funded it, created a trust, funded it, and then took all the money out the week after the trial. Nevertheless, during the course of the trial, she volunteered because, remember, that this happened in December of 11. We didn't go to trial until November of 13. So it was almost two full years before the trial. So meaning it was two full years before she set up the trust. She happened to volunteer would you like to know what took me so long? And I said, sure. And she volunteered that her mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and she had been taking care of her. And her mother had just died of Alzheimer's about three weeks prior. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And you have my condolences. Well, it wasn't until that trial concluded. The following day, I must have gotten five phone calls that said, she's lying. Her mother fell from her third floor balcony and Pam was the last person with her. What? And then once the Russ Faria trial had concluded, I contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office because I, I actually said to the to the sitting U.S. Attorney, if you don't do something, she'll kill somebody else. They began to her, investigate her. I've been told that she was somehow made aware of that investigation. And my gut is that she panicked. And that's where the other murder of an individual by the name of Louis Gumpenberger came into play. And she attempted to frame Russ in that murder as well. She put a note allegedly from Russ on the guy's pocket that she shot and told a story about how he was demanding money for Russ. And that's what unraveled her even exactly, more. Exactly. Yeah. Right? She's, yeah. She's been sentenced on that case. Yeah. She'll never get out of prison. She's been sentenced in that case to life imprisonment without parole. And she's currently charged with the murder of Betsy Faria. Okay. So she is charged yes. with that. She's not charged with the murder of her mother. Why is that? Just because they can't technically prove that? There's no evidence? Well, it's one of those things where you know it in your gut, but can they prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? There was no surveillance cameras in the hallway. The doors were all unlocked. The mother's 
room was ajar. Um, even though we know Pam was the last known person to be with her, there's enough to poke holes in there. I don't know if it's reasonable, but there's enough to poke holes in the story as to what may or may not have occurred. How many hours do you think that you've spent on Russ's case? <laughs> wow. You guess. Um, <laughs> I can't guess. Hundreds. I've tried two Thousands? jury trials. Thousands is probably pushing it. Um, I honestly don't know. I, if I sat down and put pen to paper, I was spending 12 hours a day in trial for two weeks during the course of those two trials. The preparation that went into it, if you want to then include the, uh, the work on the appeal, all the arguments I've made, all the times I went to court. And then there was also a civil suit, and there was plenty of hours that went into that as well. From like an internal perspective, how does it work on your end? How many people assist you? Do you have like research assistants or how many people are on your team? Well, I have a firm with about 15 lawyers. We all do criminal defense and different individuals here help out with different cases. There's about probably three that work with me more than others. And it just depends upon the case and the jurisdiction as to what lawyer in my firm would be working with me. But I've got a lot of very high qualified individuals here who are all pretty committed to what we do. How many cases do you work a year? Oh, boy, that's a wonderful question. And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you know, there's really small cases uh, and then there's big cases. And I probably handle a couple hundred cases a year. Wow. And a small case, does that take you collectively a week or is that still months? No, it. Uh, the small cases still, unfortunately, will take six to nine months to a year. But wow. They are, when I say small, and I don't want to diminish anything, but a simple drug possession. I've probably handled, I don't know how many, thousands of those. A police officer says, I saw this individual throw drugs. The work that's going to go into that is exponentially less than what would go into a rape investigation or a complex murder or a white collar federal case. So they're not small, and I understand that nothing is small to my clients who are enduring and going through those things, it's just not the same amount of work. So to say I have 200 cases, something could be a drug possession. I don't have 200 murders. That just physically would be impossible. How often do you? Yeah. How often do you work <laughs> murder cases? Are those still pretty frequent? Yes, I always have uh, 10-ish murders ongoing and some white collar cases ongoing. So that's always kind of. And those cases are just more time consuming by their nature. Okay. So th then this is my next question is because you see humanity through this lens and kind of like you said, how anyone is capable of anything, how has that changed your perspective on mankind or how you interact with people in general? I like to think it hasn't. Um, I would say my own personal view is I tend not to or try not to judge people. People have their reasons for doing whatever it is they're doing, and in their mind, it's justified. So when you ask me, do I defend guilty people? Yeah, I, I don't judge them. I just do my job, and essentially my job is forcing the state to do their job. So in my personal life, I tend to attempt to use the same ethics and morals where if somebody says something bad about somebody else, I have to see it for myself, and I'm not going to judge that person, or at least I'm not going to prejudge that person. How do you not let your job bleed over into your personal life and your family life? Well, two things. Number one is my wife and I met at the public defender's office, so she was a criminal defense attorney as well. Uh, so she is somebody who I can bounce different theories off of at times, and 
there is somebody to talk to outside of the office. But I would say 99% of the time, I leave it at the office. I just compartmentalize and because this could drag you down. It, it would make it a tough life. And I think that's why you hear many criminal defense attorneys become alcoholics. It's tough stuff you deal with. But I, I can compartmentalize. I leave it at the office. What does happen frequently is friends and family often want to talk about cases that you're dealing with, specifically cases that will be high publicity or in the news. And I, I have talked about the Russ Faria case for the last decade and people, it happened to me yesterday, two people I didn't know came up to me at, at a coffee shop and wanted to talk about it. And I don't mind. Oh, you would be my most favorite family member at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I would be sitting right next to you. <laughs> it happens frequently. <laughs> Oh, I would, I mean, I probably would be like, I'm going to come work for you. Um, you would be my most favorite family member for well, sure. Well, thank you. I'm thank just, you. I want to be respectful of Joel's time, so I don't want to take up too much more time. So Joel, yes. I think we'll just ask you a couple final silly questions and then we'll let you get on with your day. Sounds great. Go ahead. What advice would you give your 20 year old self if he would listen to you? <laughs> oh. oh boy. Well, first of all, he wouldn't listen to me. Well, the first thing I tell him is invest in Apple. Um, so there you go. That's a good one. Yeah. And then after that, I'd say find something you love and that's what you want to make a career. And I don't know that I knew that at 20, but I seem to have fallen into something that I do enjoy and I've been able to turn it into a successful career. So I didn't get the advice, but it seems like I followed it anyway. What is one of your hobbies? Wow. Well, I, I work out every morning feverishly. So I guess that's a hobby. Um, I love doing puzzles. It's a relaxation for me. And I have a band that I play in. I play guitar and I sing. What's your band called? It's called JFB. And I can't tell you what the initials stand for because we have middle schoolers like that it. listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll leave it up to their imaginations to figure yes. out. If you could select your last meal, what would it be? Pizza and ice cream. From where? Where are you going to get pizza and what kind of ice cream? It's going to be that thick crust Chicago style pizza and chocolate chip ice cream. What are your pizza toppings? It just depends on the mood. A lot of times I'll go mushroom and sausage or mushroom and black olive just to keep it a little healthier. Okay. I like it. That's a good, good last meal. It's a cozy one. Comfort yeah, food. I love it. I have, I have pizza at least once a week. Well, we will let you resume your day. Again, thank you for taking the time and talking to us and answering our questions and walking us through your experience. It was such a pleasure and honor to sit down and have some time with you. It's uh, been my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. So question of the hour, would you do his job or not? I would do his job if I had someone that I know is innocent. Like, I fully know they're innocent. But like you, like he said, that's not the deal. Mm, then I'd be a really bad defense attorney. That's the only clients yeah. I would seek out. It's a hard one because maybe I'm judgmental. So I think it'd be hard for me to not have an opinion. Yeah. But God, I don't know. I feel how you feel. I feel like you get people like Russ yeah. who truly they need, you. need you. They need you. Yeah. I mean, his entire life is literally... In the palm of your hands. Actually, no, I don't want it. I'm going to say no. Okay. Is this the first time you're saying no to a job, I think? I think this is my first no, but I'm telling you, I think, A, the curiosity level in this job would eat me alive. Mm -hmm. The guilt I would feel, I just, I no, I can't do it. I can't do it. Like the waiting around it would be annoying. Yeah. And I'm so impatient. You know that. That would destroy me. Yeah. That's a toughie. So yeah. So it's a no for me. And what's your final answer? Um, I'm sorry. That's the dog barking in the background. Um, I'm dying. Podcast pup. 
killing me. If I'm going to have to say yes or no, can I say maybe? Ugh, I guess. I'll give you a gray area. Sure. I would say maybe if it's... No, I'll just say no. If I'm going yes or no, I'm going to say no. Because I can't be not judgmental and biased, I guess, is the word. No, I can't. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a challenge for me. The fact that the judge can say, oh, you're not presenting that information in court when I know this is That's the evidence that can eliminate somebody as yeah, a suspect. No. I just, I feel like I would mentally just become unraveled. No, I don't like that whole aspect. And I think it's insane that that's even a possibility. I don't understand mm -hmm. it. He's a fascinating individual and obviously very headstrong. And I appreciate that. Um, and I'm sure his clients appreciate that. Yep. He was great. Job I couldn't do. Great. Yeah, definitely not for us. But I would love to sit next to him and have a monthly dinner with him. I'll just throw it out there. Well, this one was great. And he's a great person. And we'll see what next week holds. All right. Sounds good. I'll see you there. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.